It's time to sit down and relax for the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A with your host, Doug. Happy holidays and thanks so much for listening to us. You know what would be the perfect gift to me and Jamie this holiday season? It would be if you could write a review and rate us wherever you listen. That'd be pretty awesome. So this week's movie is Die Hard 2 since it's set during Christmas time, and we were already lucky enough to interview the bad guy of the film, William Sadler, but we had to get somebody else. Remember those Dos Equi ads? You know, the beer about the most interesting man in the world? Well, Corinne Rodriguez Montoya, who's an actress, a writer, singer, producer, director, you name it, she's done it, is the most interesting woman in the world. She tells a story about from when she was on the set of Die Hard 2, where she was a featured extra, and she had an encounter with director Rennie Harlan. She didn't know it was Rennie Harlan, so it's pretty cool. And then stories that involve John Lennon, Michael Jackson, so much more. So sit back and enjoy the story of Corinne Rodriguez Montoya. So what I like to do is like talk to people about you know how they got to where they are. So where did your story begin? Where did you grow up? Well, I, uh, gosh, where I grew up, that's kind of complicated. I was born in Denver, Colorado. And by the time I was in second grade, I was spending all my summers with my mother's sister in a small town in New Mexico called Terra Maria. Oh, wow. And I was the youngest of seven children. My aunt didn't have any children. And what is somewhat customary back then when you have someone who doesn't have children but is married, families tend to lend out their children. As in my case, I was loaned to my aunt and I spent a lot of summers with her. By the time I was in fifth grade, I asked my parents, if I could go live with her. Oh, wow. So reluctantly, they agreed. And so I spent the rest of my years until I was 16, living in a very small town in northern New Mexico. So wow. So where along the lines, when did you know that you wanted to like work in film? I think I was about 13 years old. In the small town I lived in, um, it was a very small town. If you blinked your eyes while you were passing through, you missed it. Uh, we, <laughs> had, we had one post office. Um, it was this, the county seat. So we had a courthouse there. And that's, you know, when there were trials and things, that's when the town got busy. But other than that, it was a very sleepy town. Um, one store, uh, let's see, and one theater. Now, the theater was owned by someone who lived in New York and who spent their summers in TA. So we rarely had films during the winter. But during the summer, we had such an extraordinary selection of films to see once a week. People would drive for an hour to see the films. And I was lucky. I just had to walk maybe two city blocks. And I saw a vampire movie. It was a Spanish vampire movie. And I was fascinated because I had, all, I had grown up watching all the Lon Chaney movies and all those other movies, uh, the, old, the old horror films. And I was fascinated because this film, rather than a cross, it was a country and western film. And they were going to kill the vampire with a wooden bullet that had a cross carved into it. And the detail of what was happening on the screen from the time they decided to attempt to kill the vampire with a wooden bullet fascinated me. So I started reading up on filmmaking and that's where the love began. The more films I saw, and the more I related to the films emotionally, I became more intrigued. And I realized that there was nothing in this life that I wanted to do other than to tell stories. I used to get in trouble in high school. 
I had a, a classmate. His name was Richard Rodriguez. And he and I used to sit in classes that we shared together. And we would just toss out ideas for films and how we would film this scene, especially horror films. And, you know, how important fog is. And, and of course, the teacher would notice that we weren't paying attention to the subject that he was teaching. And he didn't appreciate that. Uh, but he appreciated the zest that we had for the subject we were talking about. That's so amazing that that, that got you hooked, seeing that, that Spanish vampire movie just got you so hooked that you're still doing it today. So what was your first foray into film? How, how did you go about starting to work in it? Like, what was your first job? Well, I at the age of 16, um, my whole world changed and it was drastic. Um, my aunt was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. So we had to drive from the little town I lived in to Denver, Colorado for treatment. And within three months, she had passed. I literally did not know the family I had in Denver since I had spent so much time. And, and they were just people that I was visiting so when she passed, I had to go back to Denver and I didn't like the lifestyle that I had there. So I ran away from home Oh wow. and, and um, I was, yeah, I just couldn't handle the structure, uh, Catholic school. Um, although I had a lot of structure in New Mexico because the town was so small, we had to take a bus to school. We had a half hour bus ride, very limited in what it had most everybody there were ranchers or farmers i my uh my aunt and uncle owned one of the only bars in the county so i was exposed to entertainment through various different ways through the music i heard on the jukebox or through what i saw on television so when i got back to denver i just did not like it and i ran away from home and as a runaway i had to figure out how i was going to support myself well they started filming things in Denver. And I said, okay, well, I can act. So I did commercials and I lied about my age. Um, and I continued to do that. Well, I fell in love with the guy and that just blew everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so for about eight years, I didn't act. I, I didn't pursue my first love. I had two children and they were my world. While they were... Um, while they were in junior high and high school, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try this again. I didn't write. I also supported my family by singing in a band at night. So I hadn't completely given up on the dream of being an entertainer of one sort or another. Yeah, you did it all. What kind uh, of, com what kind of commercials did you act in? Uh, anything that uh, was local, they were all local and regional commercials. The one that really, made me decide to start acting professionally was a commercial that I did for crime prevention. I was a neighbor looking out a window witnessing a crime and I was supposed to act like I was appalled, frightened for my neighbor. And finally at the point where I was going to take action. So I did that. And the director who was a, someone who had directed national commercials said, Oh, you're a natural. You need to do this. Little did I tell him I was reaching deep down inside myself to get all those emotions out. Um, because I didn't want to admit I had no formal training. So I started acting. Uh, I found me an agent. I started doing a lot of acting. I got, I was a background quite often um, in Father Dowling series, which was with, uh, gosh, I can't even remember. I know it was one of Ricky Nelson's kids. Tracy Nelson and I kind of became colleagues on the set, and I was one of the few background players allowed to speak to her. But I did a Father Dowling series, and then I did a couple of things on Perry Mason. And then my big break, ha-ha, came when they were going to film Die Hard 2 in Denver, Colorado. And so I talked to my agent and she said, Hey, this guy, the director and the producer wants everybody to audition. 
there's no freebies here. And I went, okay, you know, I can audition. I, I could do it. So I auditioned and I got the part of the very rich passenger. Whoa. Yeah. Now, trust me, this is another one of those. If you blink your eyes, uh, I'm seeing when Bruce Willis runs to the cab, he's going to try to save the whole airport and he runs to the cab and there's a brunette wearing a fur coat that he violently bumps into as he goes into the cab to save all the passengers on all the flights. Well, I was that brunette person that he bumped into. So, I mean, I'm seeing for one millimeter, for one millimeter of a second, I don't know how, how they measure time, but seriously, if you blink your eyes just at that moment, you're going to miss me. That's so but, cool. Yeah. It was, how long was the shoot that you were on? I, I was on that shoot for three days. Now, this is a funny story. Cool. I complained a lot. I'm not a complain. No, I don't complain a lot. Okay. A lot of people might use a certain derogatory term for females that Ask, I like to, you know, ask questions and I like to say I ask questions. So I was always asking questions during the filming on set. I made friends with, you know, all the crew and they were so kind. And I would keep going up to this one guy, this one blonde guy who had an accent. And he was just so giving. I just, you know, I was so grateful to him. And the one night that we were going to film the scene, I mean, they filmed scenes of people running through glass doors. You know, they were trying to escape from the airport because the plane's going to crash. Yeah. So, so they're running through the airports. And so we did all those scenes. Now, it was the big, big scene. Now, this is the scene where Bruce Willis is going to go into the cab. Now, we're filming in Denver, Colorado. It's uh, January. I can't give you the exact date, but I do know it's before Super Bowl. Imagine Denver, Colorado. The Denver, the Denver Broncos are playing in the Super Bowl the next day, so everybody's hyped up. Well, we're still on set. We're all in the baggage area of the airport. One by one, they start taking the 175 background actors out to the set, one by one. Before I know it, I'm the last one in the baggage area. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've asked too many questions. They're not <laughs> going to use me. An hour has gone by, and I'm saying, oh, geez, they're not using me. I'm, like, thinking, oh, what did I do? I blew up my only chance. Uh, pretty soon, the guy with the foreign accent comes up to me. I still don't know who he is. Honestly, I did not know who <laughs> he was. And the first AD and the second AD come up. And they say, let's go. And I went, oh, okay. And I went, you know what? I thought they weren't going to use me. I swear, I'm starting to get tired of all these parts that I'm given. So this blonde guy says, you know, as an actress, if you don't like the parts, you can always write a script and star in it yourself. And I thought, you know, you're absolutely right. I should. So one of the AD says, come on with me. And I went, okay. And I followed him to right underneath the entrance of the airport. And there's a cab waiting out there. And I see the blonde guy get on this, this equipment that he's sitting on and they're raising him up in the air and he's looking into a camera and I'm saying, Oh shit, that's the director. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cuss, but I literally said, Oh, that's the director. So you were talking to Rennie Harlan the whole time, the whole time. And I didn't know it. Oh my God. That's so awesome. So I, here's the funny thing. So I interviewed William Sadler. I don't know if you ever saw him on set, but he was the bad guy in the movie. Yeah. And so Steve Joyner, he introduced me to a photographer that I'm going to talk to in a few weeks. She was an extra in Die Hard 2, but she was all those inside shots that were filmed at LAX. Oh my gosh. What are the chances? It's such a small world. Well, you know what's really even funny? Because you, you've heard of that story, Seven Degrees of Kevin Baker. Yes, yeah. Okay, okay, so. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Funny thing. Uh, I moved back to New Mexico um, in 2016. I had been working in Austin, Texas, and in the Texas industry as a location scout. Because all that time, after Die Hard 2, I said, well, I'm going to start writing. You know, this guy knows what he's doing, yeah. what he's saying. So I started writing. Um, and I wrote, about a, I wrote about something that happened in my little town. Now, for two days, that little town that I lived in that nobody paid attention to, not even the state government. I mean, we were <laughs> forgotten by everybody. To the point where the government, it, everybody that lived in that town or that whole area, for the fact, in northern New Mexico, uh, were original descendants of the conquistadores that oh, settled wow. into New Mexico. And many of them were Native Americans. So when New Mexico was settled, they were granted, these longtime residents were granted land to live on by the King of Spain when the United States won the war against Mexico, because Mexico also granted these residents land. Uh, when Mexico lost the war, the United States said, we're going to honor the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the treaty with Mexico and Spain, and everybody that lives there maintains ownership of the land. Well, in, you know, in the late 1960s, the government went back on that treaty and started taking the land away. Well, this land is how the people survived. They fed their cattle that they sold on the land that the cattle grazed, the free grazing. They had free grazing rights. The government took that away. The They had rights to chop down wood to heat their homes or possibly sell the wood to earn a little bit of money. The government limited that. So frustrated, residents started protesting and protesting to the point where many were getting arrested. Wow. And during that time, you had Martin Luther King marching in the South and I had marched in the South when I was 13. One summer I met him and he was marching in Denver. And I so supported that cause that I told my parents I was going to the library and I went to go march with Martin Luther King. So, you know, I was familiar with the movement. Yeah. So I was watching all of this unfold in front of me. My uncle, who I lived with, his brother was a sheriff for the county. So he would come over to our bar, and maybe when we visited, I would overhear everything he would tell his brother in confidence. I didn't say anything to anybody because I knew two of the kids that were what they called the rebels. I went to school with them. So that particular day, those people decided that they were tired and they were tired of being arrested. So they decided to do what is their constitutional right. And that is themselves arrest a citizen of the United States, put them on trial and deem whatever punishment necessary. So on a particular day, the fifth of, a, of one day in June, they, after months of planning, they are, made an attempt to arrest a district attorney and a federal judge at our county courthouse in my little town. All hell broke loose. We had over 400 National Guardsmen in tanks. Wow. State police helicopters flying over our little town, arresting, trying to look for and arrest the 11 people involved in what is now known as the courthouse raid. So for two days, the whole world's eyes were on our little town. What I found interesting is we hardly ever got television. I mean, many of the residents had antennas. 
on their roofs, but because we were in a valley surrounded by such, by 14, well, 10 to 14 feet, 10 to 14,000 foot mountains, we didn't get good telephone receptions. Keep in mind, this is before cable. Yeah, definitely. So if the wind didn't blow right, we couldn't get reception from Albuquerque, which was about eh, 100 miles or 150 miles away. But on those two days, all the world's eyes, all the television, the world's television cameras were in our small town because these people did not find the DA or the district attorney. Instead, they shot up everybody, including my uncle's brother, and they shot up the courthouse. So 400 National Guardsmen in that town with tanks. We weren't allowed. We were under martial law. It was horrific. So I wrote a story about it, and um, that was my first attempt at writing. Right now, um, by the way, I sent it to Rennie because he and I are friends on Facebook. Oh, awesome. And he said, wow, I like it, but I'm so busy. He was just getting ready to leave to China where he has been super busy for, what, 10 years now? I can't remember. So he turned it down, which is okay. You know, you expect that in this industry. Oh, yeah. Um, And what I did is. I'm pretty naive. I don't, I, you know, I hear people say, well, it can't be done. You shouldn't do that. You have to go through these routes. Well, I got busy and I started calling and I said, you know, when I saw, when I was writing the script, I saw one character in my mind as one of the main characters. So I found out who his agent was, and I contacted his agent, who at that time was in New York and was part of the William Morris Agency. Oh, yeah, the, one of the biggest ones, yeah. Right, and this this was just before they became Endeavor. So um, I finally got a hold of the agent, and, of course, he refused to talk to me. <laughs> but that didn't stop me. I kept calling, and he, I don't know, somehow his – secretary, his administrative assistant, I endeared myself to her. And she said, okay, send me the script. I'm send, I'm faxing you an NDA. Send me the script. I'll have Jeff read it. And if Jeff likes it, we'll send it over to this guy. Well, this guy had just recently, within the last five years, won an Academy Award. Whoa. Yeah, so I'm like going, okay, I'll, I'll fax it. I'm not going to tell you how much it cost once I signed, I faxed back the NDA, but I faxed 111 pages over to a New York <laughs> office. <laughs> so imagine what that cost. I know, yeah. <laughs> okay, so a week later, she called me and she says, he loved it. I'm faxing you a letter that says, when and if we can find financing, he's going to be the star. So I would say for about a year and a half, Jeff made every attempt to find financing. I cannot thank him enough for what he did. The comments we were getting was it's too controversial. Uh, No one wants that kind of movie. And to hear Hollywood say it's too controversial was so shocking. I mean, I was reading the letters and I was like, man, I've seen some of the movies they've made. It's really controversial. So, you know, Jeff and I, Jeff, Jeff said, hey, I'm going to turn it over to some guy and I'm going to be retiring, but let's, let's keep working on it. Well, it fell through the cracks. I never followed through with the other agent and I know he never followed through because I never got a call from him. Yeah. Well, about two months ago on Facebook, I'm a friend of a director. I'm a Facebook friend. Never met him. Never. I consider my friend somebody I've had a beer with, had a shot with, yeah. sat down and ate with. But, you know, Facebook friend, the term Facebook friend is used loosely. And so I have a Facebook friend who accepted my friendship and who is a director. 
and he has had quite a bit of movies out there. His particular genre are films about the military and war. So one night I was reading his a thread that he posted and he started with his disclaimer. I'm not saying I want to read your script and I'm not saying I'm going to produce it, but is there anything out there that maybe you might recommend? So all his other people were recommending other things, you know, had to, you know, there's this out there and there's that. And I just went my script and I posted the log line. Well, he didn't answer, but, a producer who produced a movie called Bone Snatchers, one of the producers, right there in that public chat room said, I'd like to read it. Wow. So we got in contact through Facebook Messenger. And it's taken me a month because all this time I've been dealing with my ill father and having to go to Denver. We're we're the type of family that, that we kept him home until we can administer medication for him. So we had to put him in hospice, but he was home till it was out of our control. So all during this time, I was sending um, emails to the guy. And then he finally said, okay, send, you know, send me the script under the term code word Bravo. It's gone that high on the pile. Now, you might be familiar with producers, but they get scripts all the time. Oh, sure. And just with titles and maybe long lines, they put them to the side. And the things that attract them, they set aside. Well, mine got put to the top. To the top. So right now, it's in the hands of someone that can do something. But I'm also a realist, so I know that it's out of my control and all I can do is wait for an email that they're going to say, we love it. Let's talk or, Hey, it's not anything that I think is workable. Uh, um, or, you know, they might give me advice. I don't know, but until I get that email or that phone call, it's out of my hands. But I did, that was the first script I wrote and it, it took a long time. The first draft I wrote in 48 hours without sleep. (laughs) Yeah, I was crazy. Uh, at first, I thought maybe, am I that, uh, what do they call that? Not uh, bipolar, where you sleep for days. But I mean, that was the only time. Well, no, that's not the only time. Because every now and then, when I get an idea for a script, I go on a marathon writing without sleep. <laughs> I'm doing one right now that, well, it's not a marathon because I sleep at night. But I do spend 8 to 14 hours a day working on it. But, um, yeah, that was the first one. And I had my first time out, I had such positive, such a positive experience. Even when they said no, it was still positive that I went, you know, why did I give it up for so long? What's important is that you're doing it again, which is great. Yeah. You know, I I posted something because I get, I'm in a couple of rooms and one room has like 10,000 members. One has 20,000 members globally. And I quite often contribute to the rooms. um, And one of them is run by William Morris Endeavor. Uh, the agent who runs the room quite often has threatened to kick me out of the room because I'm so passionate, <laughs> but he does that privately. Yeah. And, you know, of course I tell him, okay, I, I, I'll behave. Can I still play? Uh, but I, I'm getting a lot of DMs. I've been getting DMs like for about the past year. And right now I literally have over 2000 DMs that I randomly just the other day started reading them just randomly. And they were all from screenwriters and they all had questions and they had something. They felt something and it was hopelessness. And I told them I had to go public on Facebook. And I said, you know, this is for all you guys. Don't give up hope. No matter how old you are, 
no matter how old, how many no's you get, don't give up hope. I can be on my deathbed still hearing no and still hoping that someone's going to read my work. And my last act of defiance on my deathbed will be me flipping the bird off to somebody. <laughs> Don't give up hope. <laughs> Don't give up hope. That's so cool. Well, you know, the thing that I've heard most often in the entertainment industry, and Doug, I, I've been around. I've had, gosh, I look back and I've had such a life. I've had such a pleasure of rubbing elbows with people, of meeting people, of working with people that are so celebrated that they are a handful of entertainers in the world that global population admires. In what cast, in what capacity did you work with them? Were you uh... Okay. First first let me tell you a story. Cool. Now from what you can tell, I'm hoping you can see that I'm kind of a rebel. You are, yeah. So the Beatles were coming to Denver. I'm aging myself. The Beatles were coming to Denver. I grew up in a family that believed in conditional love. If you were a good kid, you got rewarded. My father, who was also an entertainer, appreciated the Finer musicians like Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Mal Torme. And here I am spending my summers there. And I'm exposed to the Beatles, Buffalo Springfield, the Beach Boys. The devil music my father did not appreciate. And so this particular summer, my older sister, who was the angel, got permission to go see the Beatles perform at Red Rocks, the live amphitheater just outside Denver, right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to go and dad said no, because I was not behaving. Well, heck with you. You have to go to work. Who's going to watch me when you're at work? You and mom. So everybody else who wasn't going to see the Beatles We're going to go to the Brown Palace Hotel, a very fine, exclusive hotel in downtown Denver. Rumor has it they were going to stay there. But then rumor also had it they were staying someplace else in downtown Denver. A handful of kids and I decided, well, hey, let's try the Brown Palace. Dang, it's so expensive. All we see are limos. (laughs) Now, I lived in what is called Auraria. That is now a historic part of downtown area. My home is still there. It's part of uh, historic Denver, not because I live there, but because it's one of the older homes that's, you know, was uh, uh, made in Denver. And it's part of uh, the college that's there. Uh, I'd like to tell people it's because I lived there that they saved those 12 homes that I lived <laughs> in that neighborhood. But, you know, that's just my wonderful imagination. <laughs> so. A a handful of us kids went to the Brown Palace, and we saw a lot of commotion. And, oh, God, everybody is so busy doing their jobs and taking all the stuff and guitars out of limousines that my friends and I were able to skip past all the security. And we went in the elevator, up the elevator, to the penthouse suites that the Beatles were staying in, And we were in the hotel room with all their guitars when John Lennon walked out of the room and went, hello. And then security saw us and walked us out of the room. Whoa. I love the Beatles. That's so cool. Yeah. uh, Needless to say, my first Meet the Beatles album was broken by my father because he found out what I did. I was punished, but you know what? Who cares? I saw John Lennon. I was in a room with guitars that these guys were going to play on stage later that night. I, it was amazing to me. And I was like, yes, that was the first time. The second time I was singing in a band and we were hot. We were 
Denver, Colorado's premier R&B band. Cool. Um, man, we, we had people standing for hours in line during winter weather to come hear us play. Um, a friend of mine who was a pro- local promoter saw us and said, I'm going to get you out to LA and you're going to do a showcase for some executive friends, record exec friends of mine. So, you know, it's all cool. Everybody's happy. I'm like, I hate LA. They have earthquakes. <laughs> so we went, um, it's not a happy ending. We, um, we were getting ready to perform our showcase when one of the members of our band shot up heroin and old deed. Oh. Uh, we were able to go on without him cause we were committed. Um, and after that, everybody was so mad at him. I mean, sure, we mourned him, but, you know, he screwed it up, right? Uh, our big break. There was a guy in the audience, and he was the father of, at that time, the world's greatest entertainer, Michael Jackson. He came up and said he wanted to sign us to MJJ Productions. But it was going to take a couple of months. I had made a promise to myself that by the age of 35, if I hadn't signed a record contract, I was giving up singing. I was going to turn 35 in three days. Not even the promise of a record contract kept me from stopping. I quit singing when we got back to Colorado. Uh, the band continued on. They never got the contract. They, the band folded. We went from being, from earning six figures a week. Whoa. To these guys making $300 a piece. And that was six figures a piece a week. Oh my God. What was the name of the group? It was called Jamedica. How do you spell it? J A. M-E-D-I-C-A. Wow. Now, you're not going to hear this story because bands are tight-lipped, and especially Hispanic bands. I mean, they'll, uh, another member of the group passed about six years ago, and they're not admitting what he passed from. But after that incident, everybody went their way. Certain members tried to keep the band alive, and it never, it never could be the same. You know, they, it's like Eddie and the Cruisers. You know, you can't, oh, yeah. you can't get that magic back because we had magic. People used to say when we played our originals, they got chills. Oh, it's so awesome. I got chills. Now, now I'm an introvert, and. Ask yourself, what are you doing in all this industry, doing all these things where, especially as a musician, you have to be an extrovert. The guys in the band used to hold my hands. I had two on each side and one in the back pushing me out to the stage. Once we got out to the side of the stage and I saw the audience, it was all good. So we came back and I never sang again. I recently started singing, not publicly, but in the house. I oh, that's cool. I literally never sang again, except maybe to my grandkids. <laughs> so um, I was contacted about three months later, and it was somebody from MJJ Productions. And they said they wanted me, and I said, nope, not doing it. I'm not recording. I'm not going to go on stage and record at 35 years old and act like I'm 18. I can't do it. So I thanked him. I said, oh, seriously, I really thank you. Too bad this wasn't six months ago, but that's life. So I hung up, and then I got a call about an hour later. Corinne, this is Joe Jackson. Yeah, right. And I hung up. (laughs) They called again. It's Joe Jackson. Look, buddy, if you're going to keep bugging me like this, I'm going to call the cops on you. Don't call the cops. This is Joe Jackson. I know you don't want to sing. Is there anything you want to do in entertainment? 
do you want to write music? Because I was a co-writer on a couple of songs. And I said, okay. no. I said, no. No, I want to create. I want to, I want to make videos. I want to make films. I want to do all that. And so he said, well, would you be interested in coming to Las Vegas and talking with members of MJJ Productions? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? So my husband and I flew out to Las Vegas. And at that time, they were looking, MJJ was looking for investors to build the Michael Jackson Museum. They had all his costumes from the time he was little to the time, up until the time. This is in the 1990s. This was just before all that terrible news hit. Yeah. I mean, it was happening behind the scenes, but I didn't know. So, you know, they took me and they they showed me around what was going to be the Michael Jackson Museum. And I went, oh, okay. What do you want me to do? We'd like for you to be the liaison. Joe goes, I like the way you handled me. And I went, what? (laughs) He said, you're honest. And I like people who are honest. We don't have enough of those people around here. Too many people say yes and don't tell us no. So we sat down and we talked money. And I had to talk to my husband because that meant I was going to leave him raising two high school kids. And I had to live in Las Vegas, Nevada, and commute back to Denver. The money was too good to turn down. The opportunity was way too good to turn down. So we said, let's do it. Now, I was raised around a lot of influential people. The little, the first guy I gave a kiss to when I was a little girl and who I hit and beat up played bass for Elton John. His name is Kenny Passarelli. Oh, wow. He lived right around the corner from me. And we used to sing, you know, we used to play around with music and we had that natural kid, childlike love of anything art. And Kenny wasn't a football player. He was a musician. He grew up to be one of the baddest bass players in the world. So, you know, I was exposed to musicians and I knew how to deal with them because I sang with them and played with them. And so I accepted the job offer and I moved to Las Vegas and I worked there helping to build or build a team to get Michael's museum up and running. About a year into the project, everything started hitting the fan, and I was being followed by process servers, uh, ET tonight. Uh, wow! And I'm like, I'm nobody, you know. I mean, I met I met the guy. I've met him. Um, I was very fortunate. My children were very fortunate, and my husband to have been invited to their homes to eat barbecue in their homes. You know, we were treated like family. So uh, I was, I had mixed emotions. I could not believe what I was seeing. I did not want to believe what I saw, but I couldn't handle the pressure of having all these people come after me like that. Oh, I bet. It's got to be a lot. And I had, I had, let, let me tell you, a private jet flying me back to Denver at the drop of a hat. I, mean, I had such freebies. I never used it, by the way, because I was always fly, flying my husband out through Southwest. But um, people in that, in those type of positions, find hard, find it hard to make decisions. That's so fascinating. So, so from there, from then. The, all your stories going into this, I never know what I'm going to hear. And you're the first one that has blown me away. My jaw has been on the floor. No, Where, wait, I'm oh, not done. Oh, okay, go. Seven degrees of Kevin Baker. Remember I mentioned that earlier? Yeah. Okay. Moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2016. Returned back to New Mexico. I decided I was going to join a screenwriters group. And 
New Mexico is a hotbed for filming. So a lot of the people in the group, there were actors and actresses who were volunteering to read our scripts. And there was one lady, she was a little, a little bit older than me, seasoned, such a wonderful actress. I was impressed and went, dang, you know, Albuquerque, I'm surprised they have actors like that. I'm always surprised. I'm in love with it, but I'm always surprised. Well, after about two or three nights, I finally interrupted what was going on and said, "Um, I'm sorry, can I get your name? And people looked at me and their mouths dropped. Her name was Frances McCain. That sounds familiar. Uh, Back to the Future. Now, see, I don't remember the film. I, I'm one of these people that I'll watch a film once. Oh, yeah. Frances McCain from Gremlins, Footloose. Yeah. And guys, people on my Facebook feed are telling me, you don't know who she is. This one guy said, oh, she was sexy in this movie. And I'm like, okay. Uh, Frances is one of the actresses. And I'm like, oh, my God, because she was with Kevin Bacon in some movie. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, Footloose. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, seven degrees of Kevin Baker. How how freaking small is this world? Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So, okay, that's the end of my Kevin Bacon story. Boy, I took a long I took a long way to get there. It was it was a hell of a ride. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Good. I'm glad you did. So what are some things that you're working on right now? Well, I, I produced, um, after what happened with William Morris, and that just was like, uh, how can I say, you know, I, I don't know how to explain passion. Because you talk about passion and people say, you know, it's good and bad. But my passion for creating writing and producing stories has never wavered since that day in that little theater in Tierra Maria, New Mexico, never wavered. I've had to take different avenues to get to where I'm sitting at right here today. But I wrote another story because there was a new, I I wrote another script and this was my first attempt to self-produce. And I did everything. I was, you know, I was inspired by what was happening in South Texas. Robert Rodriguez was hitting big, you know. Uh, Blair Witch Project was out there. Everybody had a digital camera and was filming. And I had a Sony of my owning, and I was going to film myself. Um, I'm pretty verbal and I'm not hesitant to go in front of a city council or a state house and tell them how I feel. I did that in front of the city and council, the city of San Antonio, Texas. Um, The mayor at that time was pretty interested in what I had to say. I gave him an earful. He contacted me the next day and asked if I would like to sit on the convention and visitors bureau for San Antonio Texas as a film liaison. <laughs> and I went, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but yeah, if you just want my opinions, I'm full of them. Sure. Why not? So I did. And uh, there I was really into the internet. So there, when I was on the board, we got San Antonio's, uh, the city of San Antonio on the internet. We pumped up their website and I filmed, I wrote, and produce a script I wrote about San Antonio because I loved that town. Uh, um, gosh, what? I don't know if you've ever been, but if you look at the movies, amazing. It looks awesome, yeah. Yeah, amazing city. And for me, a nobody, to be asked by the mayor to advise the city on the best ways to attract filmmakers. Austin was getting all the attention. They were 65 miles further north on I-35. But 
Austin didn't have the ambiance San Antonio has, and they wanted something about San Antonio. The last, the last film I think that really brought attention to the Riverwalk was something that Henry Thomas did as a child. And I can't remember the film. It was like about a spy movie. And he was a little kid and got a, a, a game. And the game was actually, um, what do they call that? Uh, information that was going to be given to spies. So, you know, he run Henry Thompson, the kid runs through San Antonio, uh, trying to keep this very valuable information from the spies or whoever they were. Um, and that was the last movie that I knew of that showcased um, San Antonio. And I think he had just came off E.T. Oh, okay. I'm not too sure, but I think that's what it was. Uh, God, I'm trying to think of what the na- the name of the movie is, but I'm sure if I pull up E.T. Cloak and, Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger. That's okay. the name of it. Okay. So I'm here sitting on the board and I thought, God, I love this town. And I was, I mean, I was invited to all these parties and just really lucky that I was seeing San Antonio through some really cool glasses. I went and I wrote a script and it, I called it River City Yacht Club because San Antonio is famous for its river and for the little boats that the tourists like to take. And my script, I decided I was going to produce it. Had no clue other than reading tens of books on how to produce, I was going to do it. I mean, I had worked in the industry and I had been around sets And I knew what happened on sets because as a location scout, I was the first person. um, I was a member of IOTSE, the union, and I was the first person that a lot of filmmakers would go to and they'd give a script and say, can you find us the perfect spots so we could film this? And I would say, yeah, sure. And I'd find them. Sometimes they would like them and I'd have to, get a check and cash the check for doing something that I loved. Or sometimes they would say, I don't like it. Can you find me other places? And there again, I would continue to do what I do. So I was pretty familiar with San Antonio and South Texas. I sat down and I wrote a script and I said, I'm going to produce it. So I got crew together and I auditioned actors. I had people saying, okay, we're going to help you out. I didn't let anybody know I was a member of the Convention and Visitors Bureau. I didn't let anybody know I was doing what I was doing. (laughs) And so, oh gosh, I don't know if I can say this because the script, I filmed it and we sent it to CTV. They turned it down and I haven't even touched it since that day. But it's a story of... I have heck with it, man. They can now. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, but I don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> I, no. And then though the reason why is because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going to send it out to other. You know, oh, uh, yeah. So, but let me tell you, the reason they turned it down was because CTV was folding, and I got a letter from the producer I sent it to, who was one of the co-owners. And, you know, he pointed some stuff out. He goes, there were misspelled words. And that was his only complaint. He loved the storyline, but it had misspelled words. So I got my act of defiance and I said, I'm going to film it myself. So I filmed it. I filmed it on the Riverwalk. I filmed it in the Mercado, which is another one of historic, you know, one of his San Antonio's uh, historic landmarks. I filmed it in their cathedral. uh, And I got me a little, a little project there. And I gave it to him and I said, Hey, listen, buddy, there's no spelling errors in this. Do you want to take a look at it? (laughs) 
And uh, I, I kind of did stuff like that, you know. And he said, no, we fold it. We're not accepting any new projects at this time. Uh. So the script, the, the actual project has been sitting in beta in, a, in uh, my old camera case with beta tapes in it in there. But I, I know that it was good. So I just kept writing scripts. And I haven't, and not too many people know I'm dyslexic. Um, my boss knew it when I had to get a job working at a radio station writing copy for their commercials. He says, you're making too many mistakes. I go, there's no mistakes. Look. And then he realized I was dyslexic. So, oh. you know, I started, I started paying attention and, and really focusing in and getting treatment for my dyslexia. And every now and then, when I'm really excited, I, uh, I will make some mistakes. So, um, I, because of that experience and everything else I've done, I've written copy for radio. I've worked with Harry Smith. I started at the radio station where Harry Smith and I would pass each other in the hallway and we were so shy. We wouldn't even look at each other. The character in breakfast club, Ali Sheedy's character in breakfast club. Yeah. That was me working (laughs) at the radio station Every now and then, Harry would come in. Do you know who Harry Smith is? No. Okay, he works for CBS. He's a national announcer. He's a newscaster. He he's had shows. He does sixty minutes, twenty four oh, hours. Oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah, okay, I see, he, I see his photo now. Yeah. Okay, so he's one of those guys. So he, every now and then, he would knock on my little office door. My office door was all the albums that they played on the had every single album they played on the radio. And the program director would give me a list and say, call these people and see if they like them. I did research for the radio besides writing copy. And um, so my experience with people taking the time to notice that I was dyslexic and their kindness that they showed me meant a lot. So when I was first approached by the screenwriter, this writer, And he told me, I have a script. I didn't want to turn him down because I've been turned down and I've been turned down not so politely. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, "Uh, where's your script? And he showed it to me. It was a bunch of one lines. And I asked him, I said, hey, um, I'm not going to read it. But I'll tell you what. What are your favorite three movies? And he told me his three favorite movies. And I said, give me your email address and I'm going to send you the scripts, the actual film scripts to those three movies. Oh, cool. I want you to read them, study them, and then rewrite your script. Come back to me. I'm going to give you a couple of weeks because your script's already written. You've got your story. You don't need anything except formatting. Come back in two weeks. Well, he called me in three days and said, I've got a script for you. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Okay. (laughs) So I saw the script. And he was, he was, let me tell you, he was standing there while I read the script. His head was shaking up and down. He was all excited because he was thinking to himself, yeah, I did it. I did what she wanted. And I'm internally shaking my head ups and down with the biggest smile on my face, saying to myself, this guy's got a story. So we kept talking and we kept talking. And he said, hey, I don't know what to do. I wrote a script. Uh, I know you got to get actors and I know you got to get people to film it. I don't know what to do. So I volunteered my services. And I said, hey, buddy, I can help you do this. He goes, yeah, I just want to put it on YouTube. I went, no problem. I can help you. You know, we can get it. And I said, gee, you know, you can film on iPhones. We we started spending time together and just sharing our love of telling stories, visual stories. So we auditioned actors at a local hotel. And one of our actors is so funny. He said, you know, I thought it was. I thought you guys were a bunch of crock. 
but I came anyway because I didn't want to lose a chance. And I asked him, why did you think we were croc? He said, I was here at the same hotel not so long ago. And these people said they were producers and they were going to get us all in films, but we had to give them $10,000 and they're oh. going to get us training and they're going to get us headshots and they're going to introduce us to all the right people. You've heard that story, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I looked at Steve and I, he looked at me and then we looked at the actor and said, no, this is legit. And I said, it's only going to go up on YouTube, but, you know, we want good actors because it's a legitimate story. Well, anyway, we got actors. We auditioned people. And I was shocked to see the people who showed up. We had a second audition. Word of mouth spread. I was floored, shocked. I wanted to go uh, make sure I was not dreaming because we had theatrically trained actors show up. People were reading a little bit. You know, people read the script, actors that auditioned, and they read it and they said, damn, it's good. So before we knew it, we had a cast and we were filming. And I told Steve, well, how about if I try to get Netflix interested in your project? And he goes, I don't care. I want it on YouTube. And I went, okay. <laughs> well, I researched Netflix and anything you submit to them has to follow a certain criteria. Now they don't mind if you're filming on a 4k camera or an iPhone, but they would like to have a certain percentage of the footage to be filmed on a select group of cameras. So I got one of those cameras and I went, Holy cannoli, it's going to cost money. But I said to myself, you commit it. You know what it's like when you're starting off in the industry and you have something so good, but people are going to take advantage of you. What are you going to do? I went through a lot of soul searching, a lot of soul searching. Do I want to help blow this up to what I think it can be? And uh, my answer was yes. So I, told Steve, I'll help you pay to get the camera on set. And he said, oh, no, you don't have to help me. I have money. <laughs> he says, I can pay for this all myself. I went, dude, you're only 19 years old. How are you going to pay for it? I said, do you know how much this is cost? This will cost you? And he smiled. He says, I don't have a life. I'm a screenwriter. And I went, oh, my God, I am so in love with this kid. <laughs> so... I arranged everything. I got a crew for him, a professional crew. We, got, we worked, he worked with the actors because he was going to direct it, never directing anything. But he went through, he went, he related to them emotionally. He said this character, and he kept defining his character with them. And before we knew it, they knew their characters. And so we filmed it. And uh, we're still filming. We're in production on that. Oh, cool. Uh, we're getting, we are getting interest from it. And I am excited because um, there is some press and it's all been positive. And it's just from a three minute trailer that we put out, but now have taken down because we're going to start putting out a little bit more. To kind of like tease. It's like fishing, I think. Oh, I believe, yeah. I believe it's fishing. You know, the more you throw, the more you cast your line, the better chances you are of catching a fish. Definitely. And I'm always telling Steve, Steve, I want to exploit your project financially. And he doesn't like that because he's still at the stage where it's all about the art. Yeah. And he told me day before last, it was so cute. He said, well, you worry about the money. I've got episodes to write. And so I know he trusts me now. But, yeah, I'm really excited to be working on the project. It's called Ventures with Hoyles. It tells the story of growing up in a resort town. That, That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, the thing, the kids in this town, even though it's a resort town, you have the world coming to ski on your mountains. But for the most part, the majority of residents never leave that town. And their only exposure to the world is through the internet. 
And if they're lucky enough, their senior class field trip. And Steve explores that with he explores he explores that lifestyle, and I'm excited to be a part of his project. And you know, it may have blown up because that's how I do things. I do things big. I don't know how to do things small. Uh, but he's enjoying the ride. Um, it's kind of difficult right now to get all the actors together. It takes a lot of planning because I have one actor working in Chicago. I have one actor working in LA and all the other actors are working on projects here in New Mexico. So to organize and to get them to film our episodes, we're doing it uh, in the daytime and making it look like it's at night. Oh, cool. Yeah. Or we're filming at night and making it look like it's daytime. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's crazy, but the devotion that the actors have to this project is overwhelming and humbling. This is so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you got to keep me, send me the information on where I can check some of it out or a page that I can follow where you're going to release it. Cause I would like to check it out along this journey before it comes out. Oh, cool. You will definitely be put on the list. Sweet. Well, yeah. Corinne, this I, has been so cool. Well, I want to thank you for letting me run over. Like I post, don't, you know, don't ask me to talk because. Oh, I loved it. There was an amazing conversation. And uh, <laughs> it's cool that you worked on Die Hard 2 because then I can release this sooner. Uh, <laughs> so we could talk about Die Hard 2. So, uh, uh, yeah, I would awesome. love to talk about the production end of it from a background, you know, player's point of view. And then from the production end of it, as how I see film production now, because I was acting, but I was in class. I watched everything they did, everything they did. And I loved it. I loved it. And I love this industry. I'm, um, you know, I've got two producers looking at scripts right now and it's like, Hey, if they tell me "Eh, no, you know, it's okay. It's they're just one of many. And honestly, I've never submitted any of my screenplays to competitions. I've never done it that I've never gone that route. I've always contacted an established um, rapport of some people ask me, how do you do it? And I say, I don't know. I'm just me. You know, sometimes people like me, sometimes they don't. (laughs) I I don't know what to say. I, I can't give. The only thing I can tell people is don't give up. That's all I can say. I think that's a perfect way to end this. So people, yeah, you're, you're inspirational. I can't wait to be able to chat again and uh, let, we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wasn't Corinna delight. She was so nice. So your homework is to watch Dyer too for a review of it. That comes out Thursday. And you know what you can do? Gather up the family, kids, grandparents, cousins, the annoying neighbor, and watch John McClane take out some terrorists. Could be a new family tradition. And on Christmas, you got to listen to our interview. We were lucky enough to interview uh, child star Scotty Schwartz, who was in the toy with Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason. But in A Christmas Story, he played Flick, the kid that stuck his tongue to the pole. Happy holidays and good night. <laughs>